lot of people still have their cars and depend on them. And the, you know, the bike network, the transit network is not there yet to make, right. you know, all their trips viable. You know, it's true of housing too. The transition from kind of a low slung single family character to a higher density, you know, transit accessible. It's a great vision for the future, but getting there is the challenge. <laughs> right. And it's like a 30 year journey. Mm-hmm. At least. At least. <laughs> the general perception of roads now is that they are exclusively pathways for cars, which is kind of a mind blowing idea when you think about the roads as they were originally built and how many forms of transportation there were on those roads, right? You had horses, you had horse-drawn wagons, you had people on foot, you had people on bikes, you had streetcars. All of this road space has gone over to one form of transportation. It's a real problem and it doesn't create an incentive for people to use an alternative form. All right, here we are. We're only a minute late. (laughs) Bike talk. On KPFK Livestream, this is your host, Don Ward. Nick Richard is not with us today, our, our other host of Bike Talk. And in the studio, we have Jesse Harris, Shane Phillips, and Mr. Uh, Zachary Rhineu, uh, a.k.a. Cicla Valley. Mm. Did I just blow up your identity? Uh, no, secret no. Identity. but I like how I was the only one that was given a, you know, a title at the very beginning. So thank you. Were you given a title? Well, you said Mr. Oh, very formal. Thank you. <laughs> uh, that's all you get. That's all you get. <laughs> and then we have Sickle Valley Jr. in here somewhere. She's running around. She's our favorite guest. <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, Shane. You are with the house. Let's see. You're the housing initiative project manager at the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies. And Jesse Harris, you're the growth manager with People for Mobility Justice. That's right. And Zach, you used to be with the LACBC. Where are you at now? Um, right now I'm at home. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, Hanging gra- out. Yeah. No, the chilling. Uh, the gravel bike California thing is really picking up. Okay. It just kind of, it's on a wave of its own. That's and the Facebook group. Yeah, but it's 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 expanding and uh, it just it's very popular. And I'm still doing my advocacy and with Sequoia uh, Valley, and you know we have an election coming up. So I think after next Tuesday, hopefully things will die down and we get back to are you structure in, issues. Are you in Council District Four? Uh, two. I'm in Krikorian's district. He's not up for election. He is, but he's c- almost unimposed. Uh-huh. And if anyone wants to call in, 323-250-3596 is our number. We'll try to get you in on the Google phone. So, you know, let's talk, let's talk housing and transportation. Yeah. We've, been, we've been talking a lot about housing on Bike Talk. Actually, we had Laura Friedman and Nithya ramen last couple shows and it you know housing is just a big topic here in los angeles so we might as well continue and since we've got shane in here you're kind of a you're i mean i would call you an expert on it on the topic (laughs) wow thank you yeah i mean you have a book coming out soon right yeah yeah i do um in uh probably mid-september is when it's due out so the you know when we talk about housing in Los Angeles, the first thing that seems to hit everyone's 
minds is that the rent is too damn high. Mm-hmm. So what are we doing? How's, how did we get here? And what do we have to do? Well, uh, ooh, how we got here. <laughs> uh, Connor Doherty actually just wrote a really good book on this subject um, called Golden Gates. And it's focused, it's focused on the Bay Area, but I think a lot of the lessons there are applicable here as well. Um, you know, at, at the root of it is certainly we have grown in population faster than we've grown in housing. And that scarcity, you know, inevitably leads to uh, competition for housing. And it tends to be, uh, you know, the p- person who has the most money um, bids the most for rent or home prices and they get the house. Uh, so that's that's at the core of it for sure. Um, I try to be uh, a little more kind of comprehensive and holistic in how I talk about housing, though. Uh, and and the book itself that I'm writing, The Affordable City, um, it's really kind of making an argument that we have to have more supply, absolutely, um, but we also have to have stronger tenant protections, and we have to have more and more efficient public funding. Um, And then if you kind of leave out any of those three components, you end up with a a lot of people left behind. So uh, what what do you mean specifically about about public funding? So uh, housing vouchers formerly known as Section 8, mm-hmm. um, those support, I don't know the numbers for that one off the top of my head, but a few million people mm-hmm. in the country mm-hmm. uh, have, or households, out of you know more than 100 million households total. Uh, so it's still a small share of people that are actually supported by those. Um, housing funding for new affordable housing, so the low-income housing tax credit, low-income housing tax credit, is uh, the biggest funder for that. Uh, and that funds about 100,000 new affordable units per year that are restricted to people earning you know, below a certain income. Uh, but that's not a lot. 100,000 units a year, a couple million people being supported. Uh, we need to do a whole, whole lot more than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and those are, I mean, that's when you see a new development. Mm-hmm. And yeah. in the new development, <coughs> they always say, well, it's t- you know, 15 or 20 percent affordable units. That's where that money is going. No, actually. So uh, LIHTC is what it's called, the Low Income Housing Tax Credit. Uh, that funds 100% affordable projects. So those are the ones built by developers who, like, that's their product. And it has its own financing complexities that differ from, like, the private for-profit market, although it's a little complicated because although most 100% affordable developers are nonprofit. Uh, there are some that actually do that work for profit, which is a really interesting model. Hmm. Um, but what you're referring to, things like through the transit-oriented communities program hmm. um, in Los Angeles, which is the density bonus that lets you build more units if you set aside a share of them for low-income households, um, that's a program that actually doesn't cost the public anything. So that's where you know you have the supply aspect of this is able to create affordable units at no public cost, and then you kind of supplement that with public funding. Because, you know, if if only 15% of our housing is affordable, that's just not going to be enough. Mm -hmm. And that's where the funding comes in. Right, because I've seen projects, uh, I guess, for example, the one that's at Sunset and and Sanborn that they're still arguing about uh, come come up. and, And it seems like the developers want to build more units and they're sort of yeah and they're sort of (laughs) restricted by parking minimums which mean that a lot of the land has to be dedicated to storing vehicles not humans 
and they're they come to the neighborhood council and they they sort of make the case for less parking and then the neighborhood nimbies sort of say no there has to be more parking and yeah they want more than the minimum actually oftentimes yeah. the the mm-hmm. local residents yeah i think um you know because they're in the neighborhood and there's never parking for their guests or whatever mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. car 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 oriented thinking and they're not you know on the one hand you could say well if you didn't build parking, you'd have residents living here who didn't drive that much and maybe didn't drive at all. Mm-hmm. So you'd actually attract people who were contributing less to traffic and taking up less space on the on the street with their cars. On the other hand, like it's it, it's not 100% of people. If you build a, a building that has no parking whatsoever, yeah. you're not going to have 100% of the residents have no cars right. and they'll still have guests. So, you know, I'm 100% in support of eliminating parking minimums mm-hmm. um, and even potentially enacting parking maximums in some areas. But uh, I, I just think sometimes it's framed as like, well, if you just didn't build parking, no one would drive. And and clearly that's not the case either. There's right. this this tension somewhere in between. Uh, and that's really you know where these challenges come is, is how do you make that transition from a place that's so car dependent right now mm-hmm. and get to somewhere where it's much less because that transition period is really the difficult time where you know a lot of people still have their cars and depend on them and the you know the bike network the transit network is not there yet to make right. you know all their trips viable um you know it's true of housing too the transition from kind of a low slung single family character to a higher density you know transit accessible um it, it's a it's a great vision for the future but getting there is the challenge right and it's like a 30 year journey mm-hmm. at least at least <laughs> <laughs> yeah and the irony is 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 the really desirable sort of areas of Los Angeles, like Silver Lake and Echo Park and Koreatown, and areas that are sort of dense and there's a lot of things happening. Uh, there, there isn't a lot of parking, mm-hmm. and people. It's like a feedback loop. It's it's like the, you'd probably get people screaming the loudest about parking in the areas, yeah, that are densest and most uh, viable by transit and and biking yeah and those often also tend to be you know silver lake is a great example of a place that just you can't build more housing there for the most part like what's there is there and the zoning doesn't really allow you to do much more um i actually just read a really interesting article recently this is like something that's a cool thing about my job is i just get to sit around reading uh academic research on on housing and transportation but um a few papers that basically found, you know, we, when we talk about building housing, we want to build it near transit, especially near rail. And I think there's like many, many good reasons to do that. But um, what this researcher found actually is that the proximity to the rail is not nearly as impactful in terms of reducing the amount of driving that happens as the unavailability of parking. So living near rail reduces your VMT, vehicle miles traveled, less than just living somewhere with not as great transit access, but really bad parking availability. Huh. The, is there an area that you can think of that I'm, I'm trying to think of uh, a particular neighborhood in Los Angeles that would exemplify that? Yeah. I was wondering the same thing, and I, I didn't give it a whole lot of thought, but mm-hmm. a lot of policies we've proposed have been really focused on how do we build as much housing as possible near high-quality transit, especially rail. Um, 
I mean, to some extent, Silver Lake might be an example of that, actually, where you know, there certainly isn't a lot of parking availability. Um, and if you built, uh, but then you have to have some kind of transit service for people <laughs> to, to, right, to, right. to have an alternative. Um, and that's where, you know, it, it says that rail is not super important necessarily, hmm. but um, bus service actually is quite important. Like the number of bus stops you have within, you know, quarter mile, half mile of, of your address. And bus frequency would probably factor in too. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, I think in this specific study, they really just looked at like how many stops are nearby. Mm. But if those stops have buses only coming by every hour, uh, right. you know, I would imagine that's less, less benefit for sure. Which is the, the, it's just the Los Angeles is notorious for bad bus service. I mean, I, I, I mean, in my opinion, I, I grew up here mm -hmm. and you know, I mean, ev not even two, two, three years ago, um, I just remember waiting on Hollywood Boulevard. I was like, I'm going to take the bus. You know, I hate the bus. I grew up taking <laughs> the bus. I hate the bus. But I was like, I'm going to take the bus to go to Harvard and Stone. And I ended up waiting on Hollywood Boulevard for like a half an hour. Yeah. And at 10 o'clock, you'd think that the frequency of the buses would be pretty good on Hollywood Boulevard. But it just, why? It just... I guess it's just so expensive to have frequency for well, a city this size, right? Yeah, and especially when you don't have bus lanes. So, you know, the the amount of labor, driver time that's just spent sitting in traffic rather than actually getting people places. Um, if we had bus lanes everywhere, we'd without spending any more money, we would immediately have much, much better service. The buses would be able to run more frequently. Obviously, they'd be more reliable. Um, I mean, but you're right, like the frequency on a lot of these lines is really poor. I mean, even with rail, mm -hmm. the, the red and the purple line, after like 8.30 p.m. every day of the week almost, it goes to 20-minute service, right. which, you know, for a subway that costs a <laughs> billion dollars a mile or whatever, uh, to then run it at that level of service is just, it's embarrassing. There was a golden era of the red line where, I mean, it was 10 minute service all the way into the night. It mm -hmm. was like maybe five, six years ago. Do you remember that? I mean, I moved here seven years ago mm -hmm. and I lived in Koreatown, right? Basically on top of the purple line, uh, the Wilshire Western station. I was just a couple blocks away and I'm pretty sure it was, it had the maintenance schedule even back then. Mm -hmm. And I remember ask, asking on Twitter or something and just, you know, Metro Los Angeles Twitter account I was like, Hey, it's, I've lived here a year and a half or whatever. It's still maintenance schedule four nights a week. Is this ever going to end? Like, what's the, what's the timeline? And it, it's still, they said like three years, I think, at the time. Um, it, it's, it's just never stopped. It's yeah, permanent, just, apparently. I wonder what, what exactly happened that they had to go away from the 10-minute service. They had 10-minute service till like midnight. I guarantee you it got too expensive. I think that part of what happens with... Uh, a big focus on Metro is um, the ridership that they seek to serve. You notice that their peak hours obviously align with commuting or what they predict are people's commuting mm -hmm. hours. I actually think that in Los Angeles, people's um, sources of income are so diverse um, and the ways that, that folks make money are, are so varied that I, I, I would have a hunch that the commuter schedule is probably a little bit uh, outdated for Metro. Yeah. Um, you also notice looking at the frequency of their Metrolink trains, obviously um, 
obviously something designed specifically for this very traditional nine to five commute. Right. And what happens after um, those commuting hours is obviously they're serving um, a less affluent uh, ridership. Mm. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure that that has a lot to do with um, with reducing the service after hours. I even uh, although I mean, th- I mean, this is a party city. This is like there's <laughs> people want to. You know. People want to. I think you're absolutely yeah, right. I, I, I mean, want to. I wanted to go to Harvard and still don't take the bus. <laughs> right. Yeah. I ended up taking an Uber because right. I was like, this is a half hour time. Mm-hmm. What an ordeal. Yeah. Yeah. The city that I grew I grew up on the East Coast in North Carolina. And so the city that uh, my friends and I would go to to have fun was New York. And the trains ran every five minutes, 24 hours. Wow. And they go. They're super expansive. I think uh, in L.A. the figure is that 80 percent of the county lives within five miles of a uh, a train station. Mm-hmm. Um and in New York, it's like 97% of mm. people live within half a mile of a train station, <laughs> which is just like completely, you know, the yeah. complete opposite. And, and um, to your earlier point about the times that people travel, um, Metro is in the midst of doing their next mm-hmm. gen bus study and mm-hmm. restructuring of all the lines, which is a really <laughs> great thing to be doing. Um, and I think it's going to make a big difference in it. The number of people who will live within... Um, you know, a half mile or, or some short distance of service that's going to be 15 minutes or less, uh, frequencies of 15 minutes or less, uh, that's going to go up a lot. Uh, but what they found is that, you know, they're really scheduled for the morning and evening peak, and they have a ton of travel in the midday uh, that's just, you know, kind of ignored. And so I, presumably they're hoping to fix that with this up- update. Does Absolutely. Does you notice also the dash buses recently, they've been doing a lot of advertising around that. Mm-hmm. They've started running the dash buses later, and you see signs up that say, you can take the dash to dinner with your friends, or you can take the dash, you know, after hours. And so they're definitely trying to push this idea of yeah. transit being outside of just a, a commuter amenity. Well, I mean, you know, uh, the big problem is culturally, because I don't know if we, um, when, you know, these updates come come online how it's going to like really introduce people reintroduce uh transit to people i think you know one of the problems we've had is just you know whether it's housing and single family housing or transportation you know we just it's like we're about three generations deep here in los angeles for this is the way things are to get around and you know, even for me growing up as someone who liked biking, but never considered myself a full-time cyclist until, you know, maybe a decade ago. Um, just like, what was my line of thinking back then? And how did I get to get to this place? And now, but that's the majority of people here in Los Angeles. So like, how do we help close that gap with, with, with people? I have thoughts, but I'll let Jesse go first. Oh, um, (laughs) well, I think what you said about reintroducing people to transit is a big thing. And actually, Shane, to piggyback on something you were talking about earlier, which is uh, bus only lanes. Mm -hmm. I think that's a huge part of it is taking not just creating a substitute product in the form of public transportation, but um, also taking space away from cars on the road. Right. So that folks are more incentivized to explore those substitution. That's Satan um, talk right there. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Exactly. Um, I was actually talking to my brother about this earlier, about how uh, the perception, obviously, of not just car drivers, but in the general perception of roads now is that they are exclusively pathways for cars, which is kind of a mind blowing idea when you think about 
the roads as they were originally built and how many people um, and how many forms of transportation there were on those roads, right? You had horses, you had horse-drawn wagons, you had people on foot, you had people on bikes, uh, you had you had streetcars, and now the fact that it's gone, all of this road space has gone over to one form of transportation. Um, it's it's a real problem, and there's not really, it doesn't create an incentive for people to use on al- an alternative form. Yeah, and on the, on the subject of, like, the culture, I think you're right that, you know, the culture is very much car-centric, and, you know, a lot of people who believe you can't get around any other way. Um, but I, at the same time, I think there, there's kind of two ways it could be. It's it's either um, the the culture, or I guess I'll, I'll rephrase that. So um, if someone decided, like, they changed their mind about the car culture and they were like, you know what, maybe it's not such a car, car culture. I'm going to try to take the bus to the train. If the service is bad, they're going <laughs> to very quickly go back to the car. And so yet I think the service has to be the thing that changes first, mm. and then you change the culture. Um, it, me personally, I, I got a car the day I turned 16. I grew up in Washington State, drove like 15,000 miles a year, uh, didn't, literally didn't ride a bike a day from like age 16 to 22 or so. And what changed for me was I was going back to school, um, and my car died, uh, and it, just the timing worked out. I was like, well, I'm going to be moving to Seattle. Um, I'm going to be near the campus. Uh, you know, I'm just not going to buy a car uh, to replace it. And it's been more than a decade, and I've never bought a car since. But, like, I think that's very often the case is it's, it's a change in someone's life that spurs this reconsideration because people get, you know, caught up in their, their habits and – it's not until, you know, they move for a job, they move for school, some, you know, an injury, you know, a million different things that can happen, a financial hit. Um, and then they kind of look at their alternatives. And if the transit is good, that's when they'll actually adopt it. And if mm. the transit is bad, then, you know, they'll kind of muddle through, keep driving, rely on other people for rides. So I think the culture is absolutely an important aspect of this, but, like, you can't change it if you don't make the service good first. Yeah. You know, to that point, when we talk about the BRT, that's a big controversial thing right now. And Not in this room. <laughs> not in this room, but it's being used politically as a wedge issue. In the campaign I'm working on in, in uh, Council District 12 yeah. for Lorraine Lundquist, that was a a big issue, and they, they, you know, a lot of people were whipped against her because she had made some statement that she was supportive of BRT. Yeah, similar in uh, District 14 with the Eagle Rock, I think Colorado Boulevard. Yeah, and it it seems to me that if we have a metro agency that really wants to do this, you know, culturally, that's that they're they're hitting some roadblocks. So mm-hmm. could they? Why don't they sort of sneak it in, you know, first? <laughs> Just first. like go out there on the street well, and, put, and put bus only no, not in necessarily, the middle of the night. Not necessarily I'll bus do it. only. I'm down. <laughs> I'm down. Grab hey, the paint. Let's go. Department <laughs> of DIY is a thing. That's let me it. Tell you. That's true. Um, not necessarily that, but it's like choose the, the BRT route and mm-hmm. then make that route have great headways yeah. for a year or two, you know, make it reliable focus on getting good service to those routes and then you can start doing things like putting in nice bus stops with shade and yeah. and really improve the route and then 
you know, maybe you can build up a little more support for it. And then finally you throw down the paint. Yeah, I think, uh, absolutely. Uh, but uh, one caveat I do want to throw out here is that Metro doesn't get to decide where bus lanes go. They can recommend things, but mm -hmm. it's ultimately up to the discretion of the cities, which is why we have a bus lane on Wilshire that ends at the border of Beverly Hills because they decided we don't want a bus lane in our city. Right. Um, and fortunately, you know, the city of Los Angeles is at least more um, pro bus lane, at least in theory, and they're big. And so you can have long bus lanes that don't cross the borders of any other cities. Mm -hmm. um, and I think Metro absolutely has an important role to play here. They, they should have been in the past, and hopefully they will be more so in the future advocates for this because I mean, they have to recognize that if they don't get bus lanes to kind of get buses out of traffic, they're never going to, you know, recover the, the ridership losses they've experienced over the past five years. Now, I'm a little bit tiny skeptical that BRT is going to be convenient and fast because you still have a traffic grid to deal with. You still have to come to a stop mm -hmm. at the lights. And, you know, I don't know, your average speed because of the grid is something like, you know, 20 miles an hour, no uh, matter. It'd know. be less than that. <laughs> well, yeah, for a bus, it'd be a lot less yeah, than that. Yeah. So that's that same problem. Even though you have a, a lane for the bus, it still has to deal with traffic lights and right-hand turns from cars. Yeah. They're still yeah. going to have to wade through a bunch of stuff. And there are ways to design around some of that. Yeah. But, I mean, you can get speeds with a curb running um, bus lane which is not as good as a, a median running bus lane, like a center mm -hmm. lane, but that's center lanes are much more difficult and you know, the infrastructure just isn't there usually. Um, but I think with a curb running bus lane, if you got all door boarding, all these things that speed things up, you can get a 30 ish percent time savings mm -hmm. end to end. And that's really, you know, significant. Mm. Um, I, I was, talking uh, to folks here about my commute, which is from Lincoln Heights to UCLA wow. right now. Um, and I bike most days. I have an electric bike and it's like 18 miles and it takes me a little over an hour. Hmm. But if I take the train and the bus, it takes me almost two hours, especially on sunset. Mm -hmm. um, it takes literally an hour to get from sunset and Highland to UCLA uh, on the bus. And I guarantee you, if you had bus lanes there, that would be you know, probably half the time. You think so? I, half I do an think, hour? Yeah. yeah. Hmm. And Sunset's kind of a unique case too because it doesn't have a lot of cross streets. Mm -hmm. It's kind of running oh, right up against the nothing. There's nothing to the north, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I would say also about uh, bus rapid transit that um, <clears throat> its value uh, is not only in that, uh, in that you know, it's faster, which it, it is faster, mm -hmm. but I think what it also does is create a lane, a usable lane for folks who are not in single passenger vehicles, because most of the bus lanes, if not all the bus lanes, I think are also um, okay for bikes, yeah. I right. guess, with the exception of like the orange line, but they have a, a bike lane adjacent to it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think it really creates a, a good opportunity to diversify uh, the users of the street, even if you know the bus rapid transit itself um it's st it still has to contend with the with the barriers that you know urban streets have it it just it's still going to be um you know a bus on an on it's, an urban street it's still going to be slower than cars possibly i feel i think you know 
I don't know. I don't have numbers on it, but I think that it, it could be comparable, right? Depending on, um, yeah. yeah, the amount of traffic because if cars are are sitting in traffic and the bus is right. is uh, is still moving, it's going to be able to make it through lights sure. that it's that you know cars are still waiting to even approach. Yeah. The, so. the the two and the three o two on sunset, um, you know. The bus is slow, but cars are not moving much faster. <laughs> they don't have to stop, but right. they're, you know, it's it's just inching along. So it doesn't, frankly, like the bus stops and lets people on and picks them up, but it kind of like almost moves back into the same place because people have moved so little <laughs> in that time. But it depends, yeah. Right, and if it, there's a bus, then they just move right to the front mm-hmm. of all the mess. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's always been my framing of this is, you know, when we had Measure M and R and, and basically any time like a politician, and I understand why they do this, but they, they frame these investments as like, we're going to reduce congestion. And the reality is like, mm. there's just too many people and driving is convenient in many cases. And so even if you, you know, get some people out of their cars because the train or whatever becomes more useful, someone else is going to try to take that right. space. So you can't reduce congestion but you can give some people an alternative to it. Well, that's always, what bus lanes really can do. I always use congestion per capita as the measurement. It's like, yeah, the streets are just always going to fill up to the point where it's not convenient. But if you've given a whole bunch more people an option other than driving a car, then you've yeah. reduced congestion per capita. You know, like, yeah. I mean, New York, the streets are you know, filled and traffic jammed, but tons and tons of people are moving. Yeah. And not to mention you have to think about the people who already use transit and oftentimes not because they choose to, but because they have no alternative, whether financially, because of their health or age or, you know, either too high or too low. Um, And so, you know, we can do a lot for those people as well. Um, It's not just about trying to increase ridership. It's just a lot of people rely on this right now and it's not serving them well at all. Mm -hmm. Which is what Metro often focuses on is getting new riders. Um, at the expense of uh, their core riders, right, the folks who depend on transit. Um, Also, I think a really important thing to highlight is that people choose make their transportation choices the same way that we make our housing choices and our grocery store choices, and it's based on the economic impact, right? At the end of the day, people will ride public transportation if it costs them less, and that's not obviously not just monetarily, but if it costs you less time and your time is worth a lot to you, um, then you know, you're more likely to use the form of transportation that's going to cost you the least in uh, in time and economic resources. So um, did, that's did, a huge part of it, I think, is that people people can afford to drive a car, and the car is private. And mm-hmm. privacy, I, I always say, is like the ultimate commodity. If you take <laughs> something that's for sale and it's already a high price, and then you say, but we're going to make it private, you can charge even more for it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like a private jet plane is a perfect example. You could fly on a regular plane, get to the same destination, but it's not private. You're going to pay more for that private jet plane because, simply because it's private. And I think um, that's a huge tool of uh, capitalist markets, right, is to, like, privatize something to in order to make it uh, cost more. And people seem to really value that because even in situations, yeah, that I think about where public transportation is obviously going to be the faster choice for something, right, when there's just like a ton of traffic, um, people would still rather sit in their car in in private. Um, I think in a lot of situations, in a lot of ways, people feel safe um, in their cars. Uh, and I've thought Absolutely. about that a lot with the uh, coronavirus, actually, I've been thinking <laughs> about like, you know, they're like, okay, wash your hands all the time, especially, you know, after after touching public items. 
um, and avoid large groups of people. And I'm like, this is describing public <laughs> transportation the whole time. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, I've, I'm definitely a person, obviously a huge fan of public transportation. I think um, it's one of the most <coughs> valuable assets that uh, that governments can, can make sure is applied to their people. Um, but, yeah, I think for uh, for L.A. it can be a hard sell, especially because uh, what we have wrapped up in there is um, a huge bias and a huge stigma around something that is, like, affordable, right? Like, L.A. is it's Hollywood and um, definitely status there's symbols. A, <laughs> absolutely. There's, there's more status in having a car. Um, you see it all the time if you spend any time on, I don't know, Tinder. It's like a thing that people are like, I have my own my own place <laughs> and my own car and no kids. And I'm like, okay, that is the thing that said that makes you adult or like you know, but that's absolutely the way that people think about I've it. Is you're not grown that. up if you don't have a car. Right, you know, which right. I'm glad that they put it there. I'm like that I now I know that we are absolutely not compatible. So right. definitely right. hard left. But <laughs> right. um but yeah, it's definitely it's part of the mindset that people carry around with them when they're mm. making transportation choices. That's so funny. I've definitely seen that on dating apps where it's like please have a car <laughs> and I'm like swipe <laughs> done jobs too employers all the time i can't even tell you when i first moved here i was looking at really somebody. yeah they're like oh, you yeah. must have a reliable form of transportation right. which yeah. is code for car and you can yeah. understand why that would be important to them yeah. and that's and that's you know yet another benefit of of bus lanes is even if it's not faster if you know it's going to take sure. a certain amount of time every time and not going to take an extra 40 minutes one day because, you know, traffic and whatever, um, that allows you to leave your home later. And so it saves you time even if the actual trip, once you're on the, b- the bus, is not faster. So that's, well, that's a big benefit I mean, as well, that, for sure. There's some kind of an X factor in there about traffic. It's like, you know, having grown up here, I've grown up with traffic, parking, all that stuff. So I have this instinct in my head when I'm driving, like, ah, I, I know how to get there. I could beat traffic. And it's like this, you know, crapshoot. It's, it's a test of your skills if you <laughs> can get there and then find parking right in front. You know, there's, there's, there's always a chance that it's going to work. It's like gambling in Vegas. Like, you feel like you're going to win, and that keeps people engaged with their cars in a way, even though traffic – sucks you know well and it feels it feels like a sense of control even if you know you're really at the mercy of of traffic and everything and, and, I, and i will say like i i think that dot metro they have their work cut out for them um because i'm i'm from i grew up outside the suburbs of seattle but in seattle proper for five or six years and the people's conception of what seattle is in terms of where they travel to is much smaller. You know, like if you live in the center of Seattle, almost nothing you're ever going to do requires you to go more than 10 miles away. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a compact city. It's not extremely dense, but it just doesn't have this endlessly sprawling nature. Whereas in LA, you know, Long Beach to Santa Monica to downtown and parts of the valley at the very least are, you know, people expect to be able to get to all of those places in a reasonable amount of time. <laughs> and that's a really hard thing for a transit system to achieve. It's just you can only do so much, and and a lot is demanded of it. Yeah, I mean the freeway system will get you, you know, to Long Beach in thirty five forty minutes. Mm-hmm. When there's traffic, it's an hour and fifteen. 
that's still better than the blue line. You know, going from downtown to Long Beach. Mm, Where's the blue an line? Hour. Like 45, an hour? 45 minutes to an hour or something like that. Yeah. I will say the blue line, and I feel like we're giving Metro a <laughs> lot of. <laughs> I hope they're listening to they that. Know, because they know. You're getting a lot of <laughs> They're trying. Yeah, they are. Um, the blue line is probably the least reliable line of all the lines, and mm-hmm. it's really uh, huh. it's really annoying because it, it does cover so much yeah. uh, so much area um, that it really cuts off a lot of L.A. to. Fo- I actually I had a job interview down in Compton, like maybe a little over a year ago at Compton College, and I was kind of excited about the job, and then I saw signs on the way back. I saw a sign on Metro that said that the the blue line would be down for like all of oh, yeah. 2019. And oh, I was like, I guess, God. I guess not. I guess I won't <laughs> do that job because I definitely am not going to bike to, you know, Compton on a, on a daily basis. Um, but it, it, it has real effects on, on people's lives, you know, not having, not being able to rely on um, these sources of, of public transportation. Do we know why ridership has gone down? Is it the Uber Lyft thing? Is it is that what it is? Do we figured it out yet? There's there's a lot of reasons. Um, so I think it was actually some folks at UCLA did a study, um, maybe uh, for SCAG or someone, the Southern California Association of Governments, but whoever the funder was, they found that actually maybe the biggest uh, factor was an increase in the number of cars. So a lot of people over the past five or 10 years have bought cars. Um, I, I couldn't tell you the ratio anymore, but it used to be, you know, say every person or household that came to Los Angeles in the past, maybe in the mid 2000s or something, you'd have like half a car, say. And now it's like one for one, hmm. something like that. And I, I'm really, really ballparking, kind of making up those numbers, but that kind of scale. And I think, you know, there's a lot of aspects to that. Um, that's not all. I think, you know, if we had had bus lanes, and this is kind of circular, like people right. got cars for a reason, right? because they felt like that was their best option. And if we gave them something that was a better option, or at least a good enough option that it made it not worth it to spend a bunch of money on a car and take on that risk and everything, um, you know, a lot of those people probably wouldn't have bought cars in the first place. And I think a lot of, uh, I mean, Uber drivers, I have a friend who's driving Uber right now, and she is doing the program where she doesn't have the money to get a car. Mm-hmm. She really wanted a car. And she she wanted a car so bad, she decided basically to work for Uber because they have this program where you can rent a car every week for 200 bucks, 210 bucks or something like that. And she's about to, you know, leave that program. I think they're actually shutting that program down, but mm. it was sort of like, wow, okay, Uber made it super easy for somebody who doesn't, have money to get into a car that's kind of crazy i think even worse than that is at least when you're just renting it you can stop (laughs) Uh, a lot of people i i'm sure bought cars with the intention of working for uber and that's kind of bad enough just on its own but you know imagine if you bought a car four years ago because you wanted to work for uber and then over the ensuing four years they've just repeatedly cut the rates that they pay to their drivers. And so you came in thinking, okay, I'm making 15 or whatever dollars an hour. And now you're making eight or 10 or something. Yeah. Um, and you still have that same car payment you have to make. So I think a lot of people got burned really badly by them. And they put a lot of miles on those, mm-hmm. those cars too. 
just crazy yeah i mean i think they even do like tactics like when she first signed up she's like oh my god i got these trips and paying 30 dollars an hour i'm making all this money and then over the period of months that she was involved in it by the by the third or fourth month she actually wasn't making enough money to pay her rent she had to move mm-hmm. to a, a cheaper spot in southgate <laughs> from glendale and still drives and it's it's just this like treadmill that you can't get off of once you're on it too it's like you got to spend a lot of time driving it's it's wild i mean and then throwing the coronavirus why not you know <laughs> <laughs> like you have all these weirdos in your car like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And the the decline in ridership is a a national trend across um, public transportation agencies. Are there groups working on this? Like, you know, I don't call it like the car Illuminati, but like fossil fuel entities sort of figuring things out. Like, how do we keep people... Is it, are there groups like that? Come on. I don't think they Can have to. Cars? I don't think yeah. they have to be so <laughs> like in the shadows. I right. Think, you know, just look at like a car commercial. They're pretty open about like cars are great. Don't you want one? You know, yeah, this, absolutely. this will define you. But policy wise, I mean. There's definitely lobbyists. Yeah. Yeah. Triple yeah. A. Triple A is a huge. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. They, they, they work on policy in the background, like yeah. subtle policy that like this parking requirements thing. I don't know if they were involved in it, but well, the that, speed that, limit, the eighty-five percent rule, yeah, as well. That, I think yeah. I think they had a huge role in that. I believe um, with, this is the the rule that says basically speed limits on a road have to be set at whatever the eighty-fifth percentile is. So, someone driving near the top of the distribution of speeds, that's got to be the speed. Right. As opposed to like a rational system would actually maybe be the opposite of that, like the, the bottom 15%. Right. We um, were talking with Laura Friedman about yeah, that last week. That's Yeah. She's the one really been leading yeah, on that yeah. with the legislation. Her, and, he, and even Mike Gatto before her in mm-hmm. that same seat. I wonder what's going on over there. <laughs> but they, it's really awesome. And Laura Friedman is like, she's a policy, like yeah, she is machine. Great. Like she just knew everything. It was great learning from her. Well, may, maybe on the flip side to counter like the triple A's in the gas industry, um, couldn't like developers be seen as an ally for somebody pushing for more? Well, I mean, first of all, the trans-oriented communities, but uh, I mean, we can only build out so much further. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a friend who's a developer, and you know, people who yell at him and call him the worst thing in the world, <laughs> and for charging as much. But he's like, look, I'm trying to build something because that's my job, but the land costs so much and I can only build so much on the, on there. So for me to make ends meet, um, so. Right, because building, okay, so, you know, it's like when a developer builds a building, they have a 30-year loan or something like that or 15 years or whatever, they got to pay it back. Building a building is hugely expensive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you got to throw half of that land to parking cars and car storage. So yeah, you probably rather than half the land, it's it's underground or in, yeah. it's in a structure where it costs thirty or fifty thousand dollars a space. Yeah, yeah, effectively, that's still a yeah a big chunk of the project yes, is dedicated yes. to parking. Oftentimes, half the square footage of the building is parking. Yeah. yeah. 
and uh, they got to pay that loan off, so they're charging a lot mm-hmm. for the rent. And uh, I think people don't think about that enough. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, okay, yes, developers, they they can be greedy. Sure, I'm sure they're, you know, they're all trying to make a profit. But they also have a lot of, there's a lot of cost involved. Yeah. And you get a lot of, you know, even uh, renters will oppose a development project um, because they see it as, as a threat to their, mm-hmm. you know, their their rent, um, their their rent goes up when when the neighborhood starts gentrifying and they're building new buildings. Yeah. Even though there's a lot of evidence that actually, when new buildings come in, it kind of stabilizes prices in that immediate neighborhood. Mm. And you know, there's like this is the perennial fight over housing: is yeah. is new development a cause of rising prices or a symptom of them? And mm-hmm. you know, I think most of the evidence mm. in most cases points to it being a symptom of rising prices. Mm. Um, but you know, that's that's the fight that's happening. And and the reality is, you know, if it costs you for land and construction and financing and everything, say four hundred or five hundred thousand dollars to build a unit. You can't charge a thousand dollars a month. Right. You know, you would lose several hundred thousand dollars on each unit, um, and you know, even really, the only difference between a market rate, twenty five hundred or three thousand dollar a month unit, and an affordable building in a unit, um, where it costs maybe eight hundred or a thousand dollars a month, the only difference, really, is the market rate one has no subsidies and the affordable one does. And that's Mm. how Mm -hmm. they bring the price down because it costs the same amount to build. Oftentimes it costs a little bit more to build an affordable unit because the complexity of the financing and they they just have to go through extra process and there's extra requirements because they use public funds. And now, you know, sometimes we go back and forth on the Greater LA group about there's just so many aspects to this. It, it's it's impossible to solve. Forget it. Let's just <laughs> let's just move to an island. Or um, I mean, even you know, even even in my situation, I I was uh, my apartment building was bought, and unfortunately, it wasn't a rent control, mm. and it followed right after some development happened across the street. Mm-hmm. Where they they tore down like an old mansion. It was in Los Feliz, and they put in a uh, you know it was like an eight unit. Um, what do they call it? Like lot. a small lot subdivision. Small, yeah, yeah, small lot yeah. subdivision, which I thought was great. I'm on board. Yeah, you know I want. And then all of a sudden, somebody bought my building and yeah. they threw all of us out. Yeah. Now, if I wasn't really paying attention to what's going on, if I didn't have like resources here, my family's from Los Angeles, like I would have been. I would have looked at that development across the street and I said, that's the reason that I got thrown out. Yeah, and and in your specific case, it could have been. I mean, I mean not directly, but it's possible the owner of your building has just kind of like an absentee, just find a charge or whatever and collect their rent, but then they see this development across the street and maybe the land sold a year or two before and they weren't really paying attention, but then they see these these buildings going up and they're like, oh, um, you know, I, can, I can do this. And yeah. this is, this is what, why I say, you know, housing supply is essential because if you don't have enough, then it's going to go to the people who have the most money. And, mm-hmm. I'll, and I'll just throw in a little stat that I dug up a few days ago, which I thought was really illuminating. In the count, Los Angeles County, we, the number of households earning at least $100,000 a year grew uh, by 360000 
from 2010 to 2018. Wow. So that's not all people moving necessarily. Probably people earned more. You know, there's a lot going on there. Mm -hmm. But 360,000 additional households earning $100,000 or more. Um, at that same time, over that same period, LA County added about 104,000 housing units. Mm -hmm. So about three and a half high-income households, additional high-income households, if you consider 100,000 here high-income, yeah. um, for every one housing unit built. Mm -hmm. And so this is kind of puts the lie to the, to the uh, claim that new housing is attracting rich people. Hmm. Unless it's somehow attracting almost four rich people or high-income people mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. every one that's built, which mm -hmm. doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. um, so th the supply is, is absolutely essential and we have to build more. But in these individual cases, um, you know, if there were stronger protections on your building, we could have pushed that development interest into a site like a surface parking lot, like a strip mall, like a single family home, if it were rezoned um, to somewhere where it wouldn't have such a great impact on residents. And as you said, you were fine. Maybe some of your, oh, there were you know, your, there your, your neighbors were not. They didn't tear down the building. It was just one of those, like, it was one of those buildings that people complain about that yeah. look ugly, that that look soulless. You know, did they? I, oh, did they just like renovate it basically? Yeah, or, I think yeah, so. Those are even worse. Yeah, at least when you tear it down, like you get more housing, and oftentimes <laughs> yeah. you get an affordable unit or three or ten. No, this but, was one of those big, like just giant beige boxes. <laughs> and I, I used to, I used to just kind of be bummed on the building, but now, mm -hmm. I mean, looking back, like that was a great situation. I was only paying like a thousand bucks for mm -hmm. a. Luxury studio. It was really awesome. Mm -hmm. it was hot tub. Was this on, on uh, Los Feliz Boulevard? No, it was on the old ones. No, it was over at Franklin and okay. Kenmore. And uh, oh, man, it's a fantastic <laughs> spot. I guess the law that they just came out with would have protected me with the. Uh, Are you thinking of California Senate Bill three thirty? The rent control, rent stabilization oh, oh, statewide. Uh, Is that the yeah. one you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, but that they, probably would have saved me, right? It, well, it yeah, would have yeah. raised. It would have. Uh, yeah, because it would I mean, be a rent it, control. It, it's but got rent control where the amount and you can no raise fault the rent. It's, and but it's five percent, right? So it's yeah, but that's not the issue in this case. The, the, the thing that would protect him specifically is the just cause eviction right. protections, right? Which the rent stabilization, rent stabilization the, the, for the tenant yeah. protections, yeah. Right. But the just cause protection means that they can't just kick you out for right. no reason. Right. They, they have just, to have like you have to do something wrong, yeah. Or they have to have a very specific reason, like they're redeveloping it or the owner's moving in, but it's a very you know narrow set what of is, reasons. What does redeveloping mean? Like tearing it down tearing and building something down? bigger, that kind of thing. By yeah. definition, they have to tear it down. That's right? one of the things they can do. Okay. Yeah. But they can't just like kick people out for no reason and then fix up the units. Okay. Because the whole purpose of rent control is, you know, you're over time probably going to be paying less than what the market would raise your rent to. Yeah. And if the landlord can just kick you out at any time and then charge market rents, it, it, it provides no benefit, right? right. So they have right. to go hand in hand. Yeah. Rent yeah. stabilization oftentimes comes with added tenant protections. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For those reasons. I'm interested in your thoughts on uh, rent stabilization ordinances, um, especially the ones that right only affect a, a portion of the housing stock mm -hmm. um, and the effect on uh, housing prices that are not rent stabilized. 
Yeah, that's this is a this is the debate amongst. Well, it's not really a debate amongst economists. Economists are pretty much universally set, right? opposed They've, to rent control. No, no, wait. Let's preface also that economists <laughs> are hardcore capitalists. So, so yeah, they're a little biased. Not but always. Okay. <laughs> but but I mean, I I think in in a sense. So what they would say <laughs> is that when you keep rents low in some units you end up having people stay in those longer. They don't move around. Those units don't open up. So the ones that are not rent controlled are in shorter supply effectively. And also when you rent control units, some of them end up getting converted into condos and things. So it reduces the rental supply in that way as well. And so what's left that is not controlled, its rent goes up. And that's probably true. Um, My response to that is, well, if you just build enough housing then like that's the best form of rent control because there's you can always just go to right. if your landlord sucks or whatever you just go somewhere else right there's, comp- there's enough competition yeah. that right. that's, that's why you know you want both right. um, and then, unfortunately we tend to do either one or the other or neither right right <laughs> and and you throw in airbnb in there there's something about like liquidity of stock like like the availability of empty units goes down because of Airbnb, right? Yeah, I think I think to an extent um, that is true, uh, and especially in certain neighborhoods. I think uh, I, I talk, I speak negatively of, of Venice very frequently because they're probably the most NIMBY neighborhood in the city. But I will say their complaints about Airbnb kind of taking over their neighborhood were probably kind of true from mm. from what I gathered. Fortunately, in LA, we have effectively banned Airbnb from being used for. Uh, full units. Mm-hmm. So you can rent out a room mm-hmm. in your house or apartment, although not if it's rent stabilized. Um, but you can't rent out the entire unit for more than, you know, a few weeks out of the year or some, uh, maybe a few months. But like, you know, if I go on vacation and want to rent out my place, I think that's perfectly fine. Is that but good for single family houses too? I, I believe so. Um, yeah. But I think people break that rule. Also, there's not great enforcement still, so right. it's not it's still not perfect. But uh-huh. the LA's done more than most places to address that issue. Huh. Yeah, they're they're leading on that in, in many ways. I mean, we could get way into. <laughs> I mean, you know, I always when I think of society, I always try to think of what we would do if we were still, uh, you know, like like tribes of nomads wandering around and would you know it's like if we if we staked out a campground and we decided on a property management system for everybody and somebody was hoarding all the coconuts <laughs> we would basically kill them and take their coconuts or something <laughs> <laughs> or like if somebody staked out the best area to live you know there's you know i get into conversations with people that consider themselves to be socialists and Mm -hmm. communists and so forth. And I'm like, well, what is the, you know, who gets to live by the proverbial beach in communism? Like, how do they, you know, what's the housing? In LA, the literal beach, you know, we have one. (laughs) You know, it's like, okay, we're going to, the market says that all of that property over in Malibu is worth a ton of money. Mm -hmm. I guess poor people are not allowed to live there. Yeah. I mean, this is so Miami is, that, is not is that right? Miami is not a great model of urban planning in many respects. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing I do really appreciate about re- appreciate about that city is 
the the beachfront property is just full of towers. So a lot of people get to live near the beach, okay. whereas California is taking exactly the opposite approach. Right. There's some good aspects to our coastal uh, protections. There's extremely good aspects that mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's all public basically. Um, but, you know, once you're off the beach, a hundred feet, a thousand feet back, we limit development even there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a real mistake because why wouldn't we want to have more people able to live near the beach as opposed to having to live further inland and travel out there? Uh, why not open up uh, the spaces that people really want to be? Yeah. I, I would say real estate value is the short answer to that. Earlier we were talking about uh, lobbyists and folks who are kind of politically uh, at a policy level maintaining the status quo. Um, I think definitely car lobbyists and those related, you know, related industry, oil lobbyists, all that are a big part of it. But also, um, yeah, real estate lobbyists. The real estate board is huge on keeping uh, zoning low, especially in neighborhoods that have been traditionally single family, right? Because they acknowledge that um, that's 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 where the money is. People don't want additional housing because it will bring the price down. The supply, the added and, supply, and it's will important to distinguish. Price. There's a lot of people who do things in real estate, and I think you're talking about like realtors. I'm, yeah, the real estate <laughs> yeah. board specifically. I'll name the real yeah. the real yeah. estate board. Realtors right are the worst people, <laughs> 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 except the ones I know. They're all great. Oh uh, yeah, my, my brother's a realtor. <laughs> <actually>. <laughs> but we talk about this a lot. You know this. Um, it's interesting that you brought up uh, communism and, and socialism and sort of at the core of that is how we think about land distribution and how that land is distributed. And obviously our economy in the United States is really rooted in land value. It's really mm-hmm. rooted in this uh, idea of, of there being a premium on pri- privacy, again, on having yeah. a single family home. Well, that's, that is a, a good point to bring up is that you know, we talk about increasing supply to bring down the value mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of land or units, you know, living units. Uh, there's a certain point where you're going to, it's it's not going to work. Like capitalism is not going to bring, w- in our country, your housing unit is your retirement plan. Yeah. And now we're asking to build more supply to bring that value down. Yeah. That's going to be a tough fight. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, we shouldn't have built the system that we did, but it's what we have. Sure. And a lot of people now rely on it. And, you know, hopefully we can move away from that over time. But it can't be an abrupt shift because, as you say, a lot of people really do depend on what on the equity and appreciation that they've built up. Um, You know, the amount that people have gained in a place like L.A. is just incredible and insane. Um, And you look at, you know, places like Ohio where. It's like, do the people who essentially lost everything um, just because their neighborhood and city depopulated, do they deserve less than the people who just by chance happened to buy in Los Angeles in 1970 instead of Cleveland? Right. Um, I think the answer is clearly no. Um, but that's that's what we've done. And But I will say on, on the subject of lowering property values, the kind of workaround for this is if you upzone allow more density on properties, um, like a single family home, for example, maybe it's worth a million dollars today. If you upzone it, it might go up to one and a half million. And the reason that still works out is because if you can build 20 units on it or 40 units on it, the cost of land per unit is still far lower 
than it was when it was a single family home. Mm. And so there's a way where sort of everyone can win. Um, Which that's there, that's there not was, to say that it's easy because there's, there's a transition, you there, know, like what if your neighbor still lives in a single family home and now they've got a 40 unit building going up next to them, they'll hate it yeah. um, and they'll want to sell. Wasn't so, there, wasn't there a state, uh, there was some kind of state law that just happened that enabled more ADUs to be built on single mm-hmm. family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was there's what, a there's a couple of them. I can't remember the numbers. Yeah, uh, uh, that seems really promising. Yeah. You know, I've in in my suburban neighborhood where I live, I've seen ADUs going up. Uh, you know, around the neighborhood, and I'm like, okay, this is an incremental densification of this neighborhood. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's not so offensive that somebody's going to come out against right. it. So. It's it's good. It's just, you know, as with everything else, it's not a silver bullet. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you, when you look at the cost of these things, not to build necessarily, but just what they're rented out for, these are not affordable housing in, like, capital A sense of the word where they're going to low-income tenants. Mm-hmm. And that's where you're only really getting those kinds of um, rates through, you know, larger scale, even if it's only 10 or 20 unit developments mm-hmm. where you have to set aside 10 or 20% as affordable or the 100% affordable subsidized projects, um, ADUs serve a market, but they're not, you know, they're they're not serving the affordable market necessarily. Hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, there's a lot uh, we have to acknowledge zoning in this. It's yeah. I mean, it's funny we haven't actually uh, touched on sort of what the root of all of it is, and that obviously is our um, our low zoning and also um, our lack of buy right mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. buy right permitting. Right, so so developers really have to. I'll leave you to, to be able to develop describe. That. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, Shane, I know you got to take off, and I do want to mention bicycles like at least once because this is bike talk. <laughs> Nick texted me and he was like, "Is this about bikes?" <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yes, yes, it is, Nick. We're going to talk about <laughs> bikes. Trust me. We're going to bid Shane adieu. Shane, it was great to have you. Thanks and, very uh, much, Shane. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's running out the door. He's got to catch the which bus. Which bus are you catching? Skiing on the red line. He's red going line? downtown. He's seeing Book of, Mor- Bor- Book of Mormon. Mormon for the first time. For the All first right. time. Oh, nice. always All right. Thanks time. a lot, Shane. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a break. We'll and when we here. come back. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> um, when, we, when we come back, we're going to talk to Jesse about people for mobility justice. And uh, start talking bikes. promise we're going to be talking about bikes as soon as jesse gets back in here but we still have zach Uh oh i turned his mic off boom yeah i can talk mics if my bikes if my mic's on let's talk mics about bikes (laughs) Um, (laughs) quick let's get it let's get an update on gravel bikes i want to go to a gravel bike thing you're the gravel bike guy right yeah, I mean, uh, there's something in give me April. Some, give me something that can go on with my Well, life. you know what's real interesting? Golden Saddle's been hosting this thing called the LA Tourist Race. I've been watching that, yeah. Yeah, and uh, basically they give people four coordinates. Uh, 
they've so far been based in the Angels National Forest, and you have to pick your own route, pick your own bike. Uh, they give you a bib number, and the interesting part is they, I think they're odd numbers because what you do is you find a book, and you find your bib number, the page, and you rip out the page, and you go to the next checkpoint. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's unsupported. Uh, I think they do, like, help, like, at a couple spots. But um, they've had two so far, and apparently the third one that they're having in April will be a different format where there will be a route, but it may require some night riding. It might be – here. they're releasing the, the route on Sunday, March 1st. Uh, so we'll know more then. But where, where are they doing all this? Is on Instagram? Just Instagram? Yeah, yeah. If you, mm-hmm. if you look up uh, la.tourist.race on Instagram, uh, I was uh, trying I'm to have, follow that, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I love yeah. those guys. Those th- Kyle and those guys. Yeah. Um, keeping it going. So, yeah, it's, you know, they had, you know, last, the last one, you know, rain was a factor. So I think that the attendance was a little bit less. But the next, uh, but yeah, I mean, super popular. Um, GCN, which is Global Cycling Network, which has millions of followers. Really? Um, yeah, they're the, probably like the number one, like, internet-based cycling magazine across the world. They... Um, one of their main correspondents visited Golden Saddle and, you know, they got a lot of press off of that. And just the, you know, people are traveling to come and do this. And I did part of the first one. Uh, I just didn't want to be on the bike for 100 miles, 12,000 feet of climbing. But, you know, the looseness of it all, people love coming out, uh, making it up as they go along. And, uh, uh, you know, it's... Uh, it just kind of shows you where, you know, organized cycling is going. It's kind of like deconstructing a little bit because you uh, holding a cycling event, as you would know, mm-hmm. is super expensive and very restrictive. Mm-hmm. And so gravel bikes have kind of helped break down that barrier because you're going into areas where you don't have to hire police. You don't have to have permits. Yeah. Now, you know, there's liabilities. And the liabilities, you can sign away the liability as a racer, but if you don't, you know, if there's a, I'm going to bring up the one race that I had to let go of, which was the marathon crash race, but it's like, you know, if you sign a waiver, you're racing and you run into a pedestrian with a baby in a stroller and hurt that person, that person didn't sign a waiver. There's still a liability, which... You know, I don't know. There's, I don't know how you'd get around that, but that's definitely a reason why you have to shut down the streets. You know, if you don't want to lose your hide. I mean, I guess a lot of the street races, you know, people that organize them. I mean, when I was organizing street races, I didn't really have anything to lose, so I wasn't too worried. But as you get older, you start gathering up things that you don't want to lose in life, and uh, that's so. That's interesting. I mean. This sounds like a race that isn't that dangerous. It isn't like a mob of people or a crit race or something like that that's potentially going to get into it with a car or something like that. Well, I mean, it's it's still like, you know, it's not not organized. And people do sign a waiver, but the cost, it's actually free. Sure. Um, but, 
Yeah, I mean, they're not shutting down roads. Everybody finds their own way. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, these other more organized events and, you know, that's what happened with me, with Gravel by California. I just – I started up as a page, I guess, in 2017 and then last year I put together a ride in the middle of summer. And once I put together the ride, it's like this Facebook group has grown and even Instagram. Uh, people are just really – um, it's it's the thing for 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 bikes now. I think people want to get away from cars, generally too. Like when I think of a gravel bike ride, I'm like, oh, awesome, a uh, a dirt road that I can that's semi smooth, right? Like it's not it's not like doing single track where you have like a lot of exposure, fall down a cliff or something, right? Yeah, I mean, even but just even the technology in the last couple of years alone in gravel bikes. Uh, one company, Niner, out of Colorado, has uh, introduced a full suspension uh, gravel bike, and isn't it just a mountain bike? Kind of, but you know, it still has the drop bars and it weighs about as much as my steel bike, but it has a very impressive ride and I just imagine as technology takes off there and what you're also seeing a lot in the open spaces too are um you know a lot of these e-mountain bikes taking over oh my god you know hey, I'm I don't I'm know for with that I don't know if I'm I'm, I'm for it you know if it gets people on it, bikes then e-bikes on the street yes e-bike mountain bikes really they they have smiles on their faces okay gonna, all right all right but like it's that. a motorized uh, there's still I, I, I tried one. I tried one. I all understand. Right. I'll at one point <laughs> I'll have one, so don't hate me when I get that one. Okay. All right. Um look who's back. Jesse. Whoops. Hold on. I'm sorry. You turn your mic on. I would love to take a guess at what Zach will have one of one day. Because <laughs> that's <laughs> where that's guess. where I walked it's in. Not a guess, not a guess. <laughs> You know, uh, I've, I'll have one of everything. No, actually, okay. <laughs> no. But I, I will have – I did get to, to try out a gravel e-bike, a Pinarello, which is like $8,000 bike. And it was interesting. A gravel Pinarello. Hmm. Yes, e-gravel. Um, I was able to try one out. It was interesting because it had like three power modes, like a low, a mid, and a high. And the mid-power level made me feel like – I was climbing on my regular bike because I just uh, – the weight of the bike was negated by the power. On the high assist, it was really like I'm kind of just not barely pedaling. I don't know if the pedaling is a factor. So I think they still have things to sort out. But, I, you know, I'm uh, – look, I was against Match.com and I met my wife there. So really? I think maybe – yeah. You met your wife on Match.com. Yeah, she she found me. Okay, oh, really? just to let you know. Yeah, I can get into that. Can what you did, talk yeah, about Yeah, I want to see the profile photos. Oh, no. Oh, God. What did you describe yourself as? Oh, I, I really didn't take it seriously. My profile's name was Sneezes on You. Because I was like, okay. anyone that would like that weird sense of humor, at least. And, uh, yeah, no words. We That's fantastic. 10 years Congratulations. Now I'm extra against Match.com. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. All right, let's leave Match.com behind. We're talking about everything but bikes on well, Bike Talk. I heard you were it's talking about annoying. e-bikes, which I think is a really, <laughs> really interesting because we haven't, and this is almost a direct quote from my economics class yesterday. I'm uh, 
a master's student at, at uh, USC in, in urban planning. And um, I'm taking this uh, microeconomics course. And one of the things that we're talking about really heavily is sort of uh, urbanization and how urban form is uh, so heavily influenced by transportation technology and we haven't really had a huge surge or a new innovation in transportation te technology since the car um, and so I think it's interesting that all of these new kind of uh, what do they call them new micro mobility uh, they are coming onto the scene and I'm wondering if there's something there that is going to be you know co a comparable uh, substitute product for folks uh, to the car or if that if that's going to come along right at some point maybe even like five or ten years from now all of the innovation that's happening in micro mobility including the e-bike because I, I ask people sort of um, jokingly but um, but also as a real question I'm really interested in like uh, if if the e-bike you know, people, I think a big barrier for folks to, with riding a bike is that it's hard work. <laughs> it takes, sure. you know, it's not, I don't find it hard. I find it rather enjoyable. I think, you know, probably Zach too finds it really enjoyable. But for, for the people who do not find it enjoyable, it's, it's harder than they want to work to get to their destinations. And the car offers obviously a, a much easier option for getting around. Um, and so I wonder if something like the e-bike um, or maybe a future iteration of it could be the thing, like the the transportation innovation that we need to get people out of cars and on uh, onto alternative modes like bikes. Like I, I absolutely bike. agree. I used to poo-poo e-bikes on the streets, but I've totally changed my mind about them because I think, well, I always thought that L.A. would be better if everybody just rode scooters. You know, mm -hmm. and an e-bike is essentially a scooter, a like scooter. a moped, Yeah. you know, and it's clean and they're cheap. They're easy. They're easy to fix. You know, so many, so much less moving parts, you know. So yeah. I, I think that could be the thing. It's just you're still vulnerable on an e-bike. Absolutely. You know, even though you're as fast as traffic, you could still get clobbered. Yeah. You feel like you're going to get clobbered anyways. Absolutely. I also like the opportunity that e-bikes present to make biking more accessible to folks who do not have the ability, right, otherwise yeah. to ride a bike. Um, and they're yeah. great. They, they keep your legs moving. Mm -hmm. You know, even though there's power assist, you're still getting exercise and you're still developing agility and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, when we talk about buses, you know, I think that is like the missing component because – you know, even if we can double the times for frequency, still a lot of people are going to be very far away from a bus stop. And you need to get to that bus stop. And I just think of like our situation where we're about a mile away from the North Hollywood Metro Station. Uh, you know, it makes sense to drive there. Uh, to get onto the bus or get on the rail line. But, um, you, you know, there's no parking. So, or you have to pay. So being able to have like cheap, easy, quick access like the scooters. Uh, and they've also deployed the Metro bike share in the neighborhood over here too. But, you know, the problem is the infrastructure isn't there. Mm. So not, and there's not like all the stops yet, like, you know the the bikes in the right spot but you know i mean that's why scooters that's a, that's a decision that they made about having docked 
bikes instead of dockless. Um, Metro consciously decided to go with docked. They knew about dockless, where Santa Monica went with dockless, but LA went with docked, and that seemed like a like a like a hindrance. But um, I want to talk about your where you work, Jesse, the people for mobility justice and uh, get people get that. Let's, let's talk about that organization. Like um, to be honest, I mean, I remember when it was uh, multicultural communities for mobility. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. And um, I, I've, I've did, my head was always in, you know, I don't know, midnight riders and Wolfpack hustle. And I always kind of knew about what LACBC and MCM were doing from the outside. But, um, you know, let's talk some more about that. Let's get let's get up to speed on what you guys are doing. Yeah. So uh, people for mobility justice, the artist formerly known as multicultural communities for mobility. I think before that uh, we were called City of Lights. Mm. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's a it's a really small organization um, in that uh, it's there. There are very few staff, um, but. Uh, yeah, we work on, so that, that means that our, we have to be super focused. Mm -hmm. Um, and so right now, um, we're doing a lot of bike safety education. Uh, we do, uh, with Metro grant or we do. Yeah, we have the, we're part of the Metro best program. So we offer, uh, bike safety education, free helmets and lights through that program, um, around LA County and then one of the new newer projects that we've taken on which is also related to bike safety education and um relatedly to to what we were discussing uh bike share we are providing um bike programming for uh path path stands for people assisting the homeless and they're mm. uh i believe the largest homeless service provider here mm-hmm. in Los Angeles um they are in the process of building about 179 units of affordable housing over mm. off of Vermont and Beverly. Uh, it's attached to their very old, what I always called the Path Mall when I worked in homeless services. Mm-hmm. That's what everybody calls it. But I guess I think there's a specific name of the building. I can't remember. But it's over off of near Vermont and Beverly. And that's where the new uh, development will be going as well. It's um, actually part of the Affordable Housing Sustainable Communities uh, that's part of where they're getting their funding. I don't know how familiar folks are with that, but um, just now we were talking with Shane about a little bit about financing affordable housing um, and how the financing is different for affordable housing projects, especially 100% affordable housing projects, uh, than financing um, you know a market rate project. So affordable housing, sustainable communities, um, it's actually from cap and trade funds. Uh, cap and trade is uh, that fund kind of at the state level um, that in short gets money from the uh, the top industry polluters mm-hmm. um, and so it's an interesting it's an interesting uh, web of web <laughs> right yeah totally I, I talk about a lot how uh, nonprofits depend on um, for-profit businesses that do bad in the right, world, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. We depend on for profits who do, do so badly that they're uh, either mandated by the government or the market to make that up somewhere by giving money to some 
other cause, right, that's uh, in the name of good. And so the cap-and-trade fund is, is an example of that. And then the Affordable Housing Sustainable Communities grant is, um, again, statewide. So it's about 20% of cap-and-trade funds that are disseminated through a, a, a grant process to developers who are going to develop 100% affordable housing. Mm. Um, but the other part of that grant is that they also have to implement um, what they call sustainable transportation improvements, which can be, um, you know, building shelters at the bus stops, improving sidewalks, uh, installing curb ramps, um, bike lanes, uh, increasing bus service, that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I, th- I, I, you know, I didn't know a whole lot about, I knew a little bit about ASIC, that's what Affordable Housing Sustainable Communities Grant Fund, before I started uh, working on this project. Um, but not nearly as much as I know now. And I think it is a really interesting placement of accountability, right? When you have industries paying to pollute, um, and then that money goes to placing housing near transportation, which I'm all about, but, um, but basically it's an industry saying like, we're going to continue to pollute to make a profit. The poor people should take the bus to make up for it. <laughs> That's what's going to make up for us polluting, right? Mm, At the end of mm. the equation, kind of that that net uh, loss of of um, that net responsibility ends up getting placed on uh, individuals who will live who will then live in that affordable housing and be more likely to uh, use sustainable sustainable transportation options. Are they raising? industry like if industry is going to pay to pollute are they raising the prices to eventually phase them out at least that's a good question so my understanding of um the way cap and trade works is that uh what they do instead of uh raising the prices they lower the uh amount so basically what these industries do is they purchase permits Mm -hmm. and they trade permits to pollute Mm -hmm. and the amount of pollution that each permit is worth Mm. is decreased every year. Okay. I think maybe like 3% or something every year. So So they are raising, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so effectively the price goes up, but uh, price per, you know, tons of, um, tons of pollution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Goes up for these companies. So it sounds like they need to ratchet it up a little more. (laughs) Yeah. Which is also interesting because, um, if you look at the firms who are polluting, uh, SoCal Gas is a big one. They're they're one of the top polluters, and a lot of folks would say, "Well, it's the customers of SoCal Gas who mm-hmm. really actually right, right need to be um, paying that premium because SoCal Gas is a you know they're a, they're a public utility. They're serving a customer base. Who yeah, they're, is they're using s- this electricity that's causing the or using the energy that's causing the pollution. So I, I see arguments going around on Facebook about. You know, um, people will say like, oh, they're telling me that I can't as an individual, um, you know, drive drive a car and burn a lot of fossil fuel when it's really the, you know, there's only like 10 corporations that are causing all the pollution. It's like, well, you're the customer, you know, they're, <laughs> they are serving a customer and it really does, in my opinion, go down to the individual, you know, you do we do have to, as an individual, reduce our consumption and that will starve out, I guess, right? The, the big polluters at the end of the day, somewhere up there. Yeah. And just like, uh, in the, in our conversation before about, uh, our motivations around our transportation 
options. Um, our motivations around energy use are absolutely connected to economic impact. Mm -hmm. And so what hap what's happening is that um, energy is too cheap. It's too cheap. People are not absorbing the cost, uh, the social cost and the environmental cost of their energy use. Um, they're only absorbing the, the monetary cost. And, that, and if that's not baked in, then people are just not going to be motivated to uh, reduce their use. So there's a little bit of, there's some conflict there, right? Yeah, we, want, yeah. we want energy to be accessible, but we also want people to reduce their use of it. <laughs> um, <which laughs> yeah, we're subsidizing hard. energy, mm -hmm. fossil fuels, and then making it easy for people to consume them. And that keeps the economy going, I guess. And then now we're asking people to pay more for it and they get super pissed off. They were really pissed off that we voted to keep the gas tax. I see people crying about that on Facebook all the time and some of the groups I'm in. And you're trying to explain to them, it's like, all right, well, you know, let's get more fuel-efficient cars or something or, you know, switch over to solar and so forth. And it's just too much for people to handle. Totally. It's interesting when you think about energy and kind of our – general human history with the use of energy um what it really comes down to is that we don't want to have to work too hard you yeah. know which um, is a great goal i don't want to have to work too yeah hard. Uh, economizing <laughs> is one of the things we do best as human beings it's what our one thing that our brains are really good at um but uh there's a there's a this woman who's a pretty prolific author and activist and uh environmental justice her name is denise fairchild and i was attending a talk that she gave I think last year sometime and um, she made a really poignant uh, she made a really poignant observation and that is that what what happened uh, with our energy use as human beings is that we shifted right at one point hypothetically we were all doing our own labor and then um, we started to domesticate animals to help us with that labor sure. and then uh, we enslaved other people mm -hmm. to do that labor for us. Um, and here in the United States, right, the um, the emancipation of enslaved people pretty pretty e evenly lines up with uh, the start of the Industrial Revolution. So what happened is that we shifted our energy use from being dependent on black bodies mm. to being dependent on um, on fossil fuels, right? Mm. To on, machines, uh, fossil right, fuels, right? Exactly. Um, on unsustainable and finite forms of energy, and again, if you go if you go back to the beginning, it's like, well, I I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do the work. Like, who's <laughs> gonna do this work? It's got to be somebody. But the the burden um, from from an environmental justice perspective, the burden is still on the same the same people. Yeah. Right. The uh, the the folks who are living closest to um, environmentally degraded sites. Um, who are living closest to noxious uh, industries are the those those same right the descendants of the folks who um, who were also the yeah. sources of energy yeah only a couple of generations ago so it's in it's a it's um it's interesting and it's it's eye opening and it also I think about that a lot and I think about uh, just how lazy we are as human <laughs> beings <laughs> and how that that sort of is the that's the whole thing. We don't I mean, want to do the work. I've <laughs> definitely, you know, when I, I definitely had, you know, pursued after college a career in computer graphics. And I found myself sitting behind a computer every single day 
and um you know that was i there was some point where i discovered i mean it was like the midnight riders thing it was like my friend kim suggested that we all go on a bike ride together and it was sort of like rediscovering the desire to get physical activity and i've sort of been on this trend now of like okay i'd rather you know when like i'd rather shred a potato by hand <laughs> then put it in a shredder. I, I'm trying to do more physical activity and shun, you know, modern technology in a lot of ways in my life. And I think, I think a lot of people want that, you know. And I, I don't know. There, there might be some hope out there. I don't know. You know, it just, you know, how do you get people to these experiences? I think, like, for example, Ciclovia is a great way totally. for people to imagine it. But we – it's kind of just ended there. And, um, you know, and I think that that part of the reason is we, on our side, whether it's been, you know, the transit agencies, nonprofits, but we've just not done a good job at selling it. Selling um, it. You yeah. know, like I think a lot of times because when we're – uh, you know, these people in these jobs and industries, you know, we uh, justify our existence by pointing at numbers, you know, but trying to get people into cars, try, out of cars, trying to get people onto bikes. You know, it's, you know, the numbers aren't really going to motivate people. It's about storytelling. And I think that that's probably like one of the, the best ways of, of getting, I think is actually the best way of getting people excited and involved marketing. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, for me, I, you know, I always hated driving. Um, I would even run to work, but I got to a point of like when I was too <laughs> Where far. Where does this guy live compared <laughs> to what? Beefcake. Okay. I would <laughs> run to work. Well, <laughs> no, literally like I, I would run eight miles each way. Um, and I was going to say, well, actually, my work was in the garage. <laughs> <laughs> no, but when I got to like a, being a half a half marathon, I was like, well, I'll drive and then I'll run home and then v vice versa. But I mean, but then I said that was silly and I was like, I should probably bike. But this was, you know, 10 years ago. I was like, well, how do I do that? Who do I turn to? And so, you know, when you see other people do it, it starts to turn on a light, like anything that we do. Like we're not going to say, you know, like people are on the fence about certain things. Well, you everybody know? owns just a tell bike. Them, yeah. Well, yeah. Most everybody everyone. does own a bike. Yeah. But you know, you just try and you know. For me, I was like, well, why don't you just try going to the supermarket? Oh, you know, like because like that's that's the one thing is like people when we talk about you should try biking. People think like you're trying to turn off a switch and all of a sudden you're biking everywhere. Mm. But, you know, the way you get people into it is you start to introduce, like, very small, easy, tangible things to do. Mm -hmm. The coffee you know? shop. Yeah. Put a bike just, rack at the coffee shop. But, you know, like, hey, come join me. Your friends are here. It's close by. Um, but, you know, you you need, you know, when you see other people do it in your own community, then you start to think. Absolutely. You know, people well, are we're sheep, right? We're not. We're <laughs> actually we're not that creative. I include myself in that. We typically do what the people around us are doing. Right. There's there's outliers in every society, but generally everybody's yeah. 
we've, following we've a cultural norm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't know what the answer is, but we're still working on it here at Bike Talk. <laughs> and uh, You're talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're talking about it. Um, I want to thank our guests, Zach and, and Jesse and Shane, for coming on the show today. And uh, I think we have a special guest coming in. Oh, yes. To, to oh. take us out of the show. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. There she is. Oh, Uh-oh. my gosh. Okay. I can't believe it. It's our, now, it's our grace the airwaves. Yes. It's our correspondent from from the future, the yes. future of Los Angeles. Ellie, Sickle Valley Junior. Hi. Hi. Can I? I I was just coming in to also tell you some jokes. Okay. All right. So we're gonna get a joke from Ellie here before we c- close it out. Okay. So. <laughs> This is for 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 Jesse. This better not be one of Dad's jokes. Okay, <laughs> a friend of mine works for a company that makes bike wheels. She is super spookiest person. Oh. <laughs> okay. Spoke. Spoke. Spokiest person. I mean. <laughs> Smoke. Spoke. Spoke. Okay. Okay. Next one. <laughs> oh, that was the joke. Huh? Okay. <laughs> There's a vampire bike around here that keeps biting people. It's a vicious cycle. Ah, <laughs> that was good. Okay. And then, oh, <laughs> okay. And okay. one more, last one. No, there are actually six jokes. No. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. My dog used to chase everyone on a bike. Then I took his bike away. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I'm dying over here. Okay. Here's another (laughs) joke. Here's another joke. Uh, I can't take it. My abs hurt. What Uh. do you get when you cross a bike and a flower? A bower? Bike. Okay, what? <laughs> Bicycle pedals. Wow. <laughs> 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 My favorite Valentine's gift. <laughs> Why can't a bicycle stand up on its own? Why? Because it's too tired. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Dead. Dead. It's only Zach had nothing to do with these jokes. <laughs> okay, one more joke. Okay. What does a bicycle call its dad? What? Pop cycle! <laughs> and that's it, folks. I'm sure that made Nick very happy. He's going to be here uh, every Tuesday. <laughs> All right, that was Bike Talk KPFK live stream. Thanks for listening. Did it. Awesome job. I like the morning and greet the day. Pull out the bike and I'm on my way. The transportation shows I care. Every turn of the pedal cleans the air. Green in the green, I'm saving the planet. Just like my friends Daryl, Sean, Toby, and Janet. No greenhouse gas, a tiny carbon footprint of your ass. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. 
on the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is BikeTalkPFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group.